Hi, this episode of A Beat Happening will be the last of season one. As you might have noticed, it's a few weeks late, but life has a habit of happening, and unfortunately, Kutma and I are not yet in a position to make the podcast a priority. This said, we'll be taking some time off to record and prepare season two with 10 new episodes that we hope to start releasing in January 2022. We'll also be looking into something like a Patreon or similar supporter platform where we can offer some extra episodes and other things to those of you who enjoy the show and would like to support and help us do this on a more regular basis. On that note, a special thanks to Andrew, Adam, Danny, Stuart and Han Q who donated to our season one efforts. If you'd like to help us, you'll find a PayPal link in the show notes for every episode. That's it for the housekeeping. We close season one with Black Monk, friend and collaborator of the late Ras G, who takes us full circle with more behind the scenes stories of the 2000 LA scene. Thank you. On this episode of A Beat Happening, we welcome a producer from Los Angeles who you might not know by name, but who was an integral part of the early days of the LA beat scene, helping out the late Ras G and working at and with Puba Records. Today, he works in film, but he's here with us to reminisce and discuss these early formative years and how they helped shape his creative approach. Welcome, Christopher Cole, aka Black Monk. What up? What up? What up? What up? What up, Monk? Chilling, man. What up, Coots? Chilling. <laughs> and this is so cool that you could do this, man. I really appreciate it. It's been a long time since we oh, had yeah. a chat. So I'm curious. I'm curious how you two met because I don't know that story. Oh, well, I think I should go first. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, I used to go down to Project Blow probably around, uh, I don't know, was it 2002 or three when Ross G was DJing down there? And uh, that's when me and Ross G just first started hanging out. He was DJing at Project Blow. And I would go over to Project Blow and he's playing these instrumentals. Like, if you know Project Blow, do you know rappers rap? And there's a DJ playing instrumentals and then rappers rap on stage. But I was bugging out on the instrumentals this dude was playing. And every day, every week I would go up and be like, yo, man, what are you playing? What are you playing? He'd be like, I ain't telling nobody. This <laughs> <laughs> so every week I would go and but finally he warmed up to me. And uh, we were hanging out outside and he told me, you know, what he's playing. I'm like, where the f- I don't even know where to buy this shit. Like, where where can I buy this? And then he told me about Aaron's records. And and then uh, the more we hung out, I started asking him, like, like, where, like, who are your favorite DJs and stuff like that? He's like, oh, my my favorite DJ is Kuma. I'm like, who the fuck is Kuma? What? And so, he, yeah, yeah. And so he took me to the room and we hung out at the room. That was when the room was in the alley. You remember the that the first room or the first sketchbook yes right yeah yeah so uh and then that's how i got i feel like that's how i got hit to koopma and then uh yeah it was koopma coleman take um but yeah i don't i think we met there but i don't know if you remember a different story on how we met damn g said that i wish i had that i wish i had that recorded yeah Um, that's amazing He sat from the time that I met him, which was very early on, to very late. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> so you've always you've always been his favorite DJ. Yeah, I'm gonna start crying, you, man. That's you, amazing. J Rock, J Rock, and 
Coleman. That's pretty much. Yep, that that's pretty that's much those are my teachers also, man. Watching Coleman. No, Stan, Stan. Watch it. Sorry. Oh, of course, no doubt. Yeah. Shout out to yeah. DJ Sacred, Brown Rouse and Barbecue, Juju. That's right. That's a pretty good trinity slash quartet of um of I think LA DJs that certainly speaks to the range of of what the city represents. Yeah, J Rock um, J Rock is still my favorite to this day. Like that dude is unbelievable. So what do you remember, Jay? Like how do you remember meeting Chris? I I have a feeling it was a poobah. Like mm-hmm. after sketchbook, me coming to Poobah, and I think there was more like of us hanging out was a Poobah. And like when we were working on the 10 inches, that was obviously not us meeting, but getting to know you on a like not intimate, like we weren't talking about our feelings, but we were talking about, you know, beats and getting to know each other in those late yeah. night sessions when you were engineering the 10 inch, my first release actually, the Raj G A and R. And um, I think about those times often very often you know like that was really special because it was hella late night too so we were just like in the in the but yo yes but remember before that i came over to your house you were living in silver lake and of you course were, it, the house to burn yeah, down yeah yeah and that's i that's that was before that and for i don't know remember why i went over there but we were hanging out that day maybe we we're gonna go play tennis or maybe uh Maybe you were going to give me some artwork or something, but I think you were working on some artwork for something and you were telling me about your inspiration and how you derive your, like your ideas for your art. And I thought it was so fascinating. <laughs> but damn, that's crazy. I do remember speaking of tennis. We can get to that. I don't want to jump too they, far. When you lived there, didn't they used to call you Justin, Justin Silverlake? Oh, dude, is this being recorded right now? <laughs> I'm so mad right now. No. Oh, wait, hold up. To, to my defense, to my defense. You can edit, you can, you can edit, bro. Nah, it's cool. It's cool. No, to my defense, um, the house I lived at in Silver Lake with Han Cholo and Travis yeah. Stevens. And Travis Stevens also works in film. He produced the Hodorowski film Dune, and he's doing all these horror films and shit. So shout out to Travis Stevens. But Han Cholo. The, he was really into Halo. It's like this video game where you just, uh, alien video game where you snipe people and shit. And I hated video games my whole life, but I would kind of hang out. Like when I lived there, he would have like five people over. So they'd be playing video games. So I would just kind of hang out. And so that was, he had a name, Leonardo DiCaprio. That was his name. <laughs> <laughs> and then he named me Justin Silverlake. I was like, ah, oh, I need a name. <laughs> And so it was Justin's fucking Silver Lake. Yeah. That shit's hilarious. Anyway, <laughs> that shit is dead. I don't want to hear that shit anymore. <laughs> you, you asked, you asked. Those were the early days. That's, that's, that's true. what I remember. That's true. <laughs> so then tennis. Well, check this out. I'm So like I'm working on Poobah Records at my studio, which was down the street from um, the store. Um, I live on Colorado, like right down the street from the store. Pasadena. And in pasadena yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and uh so one day i was thinking like man i spent a lot of time sitting down you know working on beats working on music and stuff i need to do something athletic i have an athletic background my family was football track runners and stuff like that so i have it in me so i was thinking one day actually one day i was reading wax poetics and you know that that um issue with the mizell brothers yeah on the cover I in that issue, they're talking about between sessions, they like to go and play tennis. 
And oh, I was what? like, it hit me like oh, a ton man. of bricks. I was like, Dennis, what the fuck? What's that? You know? So then uh, I started investigating tennis because I always want to be like a one of those cool black dudes playing Freddie Hubbard, rolling in a fucking, you know, Porsche <laughs> or whatever. You know what I'm saying? With the, with the aviators, you know, and the half yes. Jerry Curl, you know, the fro Jerry Curl. You know, I used to want to be that. I used to respect that dude, you know, kind of Renaissance man, Renaissance black man from the 70s. Uh, and so when I saw in Wax Poetics, you know, Freddie Hubbard, Bill Cosby and the Mizell brothers playing tennis, I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. You know, so I started investigating Kuma, somehow got wind of it. And then he's like, yo, I got this racket. My friend just bought me this crazy racket, but you can have my old one. So he gave me his old racket and I went to work. Yo, um, um, which racket was that? That I gave you? TT, that Prince TT. You remember that? I gave you that? Yeah, <laughs> but you got a Babylon. You were bugging out, you, like, dude. I still, I still use it. That's my favorite racket to this day. <laughs> to this day, I love that racket, man. But the you know what's crazy? The, you know what's crazy? You were talking about like the um, distinguished gen- distinguished gentleman uh, playing tennis. I play tennis at Poinsettia Park with um, damn, what's homeboy's name? Ah, damn it! He, in Magnum PI, uh, who dr- drove the helicopter. It was TC, his character's name's TC on, on the show. Mm-hmm. And yeah. like he, he was a left-handed and I was always jealous of left-handed uh-huh. tennis players because they just look fly the way, like there's something about left-handed tennis is, looks amazing <laughs> to me. I mean, McEnroe's my favorite. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I love McEnroe. That's my dude. I love McEnroe. How do you fare against, you fare against a lefty? Good question. I don't think I've actually, oof. I've actually never played a lefty, uh, it, like compete, like or uh, someone not sparred. What's the word? Just practicing with or whatever. Mm-hmm. Oh man, I, want, I I would love to play some tennis right now. That'd be so great. Like, <laughs> and hearing about just playing tennis and then making music in between—that just sounds like heaven to me. Like that's yeah. that's the dream. That's the dream right there. I was trying to make that happen. <laughs> but I kept getting my feelings hurt on the tennis court. <laughs> <laughs> the good thing is, is not to care. Like I, I seriously don't care about. I no fear. It's, it's pure joy for me. Like I love the second I step on the court, I have a different feeling that I can't explain. And so I don't care if I win or lose. Like I just like being there. It's the same as DJing. Like if I fuck up, I'm cool with it. I just like doing yeah, it. I, you know what I mean? I like that, man. I need to get that. I want to get into that space. Man, the the dude who bought me the tennis racket, Edwin, he once we were playing and he lost and sat in the middle of the court and put his jacket over his head and just covered his head and sat there. And I was just <laughs> like, what the fuck is going on? Man, right now? It can really bring the worst out of you, man. It's, it's a, it can really bring the worst out of you. Have you broken a racket out of anger? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Maurice, what? Maurice, too. Maurice, you know, Maurice. No plays, way. I think he's got his temper together, but he used to be crazy with that. <laughs> I would I, I would love to see Maurice. I've never seen Maurice raise up or get like rowdy or like I've never seen that in him or you. Yeah, beat him, beat him on the tennis court on a day he's not playing with. <laughs> I know, I know Lauren's <laughs> like, what are you guys talking about? Man? <laughs> oh no, no, I'm enjoying this. I mean, I, I guess I'm also kind of curious. Well, but we won't. We'll find out when this goes live. But I kind of wonder how many people know that Justin was like a tennis head because I feel like that's not something that. That's my. Know. I've been playing since I was ten. Like no, I'm, no, no. I know. I know you've shared it on socials shit. and stuff. Yeah. But I kind of. It's always funny when you know, like, um, 
yeah, I just always, it always makes me wonder if people who know you for like DJing or whatever realize that you're also like a massive tennis head. Anyways, no, I'm enjoying this. This is fun. <laughs> um, Some of the coaches say um, a lot of the best tennis players are also musicians. Maybe it's the... The feel? The feel. I was going to say a hand-eye <laughs> yeah, coordination. Yeah. It's just the also like uh, doing something over and over and trying to master something over and over and over. Sure, and sure. Doing the same over and over true so you're kind of conditioned to be a like that no yeah no that makes sense um it's like you like let me do it again i'm, I'm gonna get it through that let me do it again so i was kind of curious about you mentioned meeting gia project blowed um if you could speak a little bit about like like so what brought you to blowed originally and like sort of what was you know for you like what was the importance slash significance of blowed at mm -hmm. the time well uh, i started going to blow like earlier on like back in when i was still in high school okay. so by the time i met ross g at project blow this was we were out of high school okay and the, the here's the thing about g and i our relationship um uh, so back in the 90s when we were in high school we, we both kind of graduated around 95 96 but when we were in high school in 1990 1991 92 93 um at that time i was living in the inland empire right so like and i was a part of a crew called is crew and that crew would travel to la to do you know to dance to tag to you know rap to battle whatever you know what i'm saying so we were just crews back then so like g and i used to cross paths in in that in that world so back then in the early 90s you would have like unity club unity with orlando and bigger b yeah yeah and so we would all go there and we would dance battle and you would see people like you know dale uh hyro uh you know uh, wu-tang all those kinds of groups that they, mm -hmm. they would bring to unity in la and it would be an underground so I, I would see people that G knew uh, at those places, you know, but I didn't meet G until later, even though we were in the same places. So we would jump in my boy Neil's car. It would be a crew of us, dreadlocks, 5%, you know, studying 5% and 5% wisdom. And some of was studying Rastafarianism. So we were all like conscious kids, you know, well, trying yeah. to be a part, trying to uh, read and, and find knowledge itself. And so, and uh, so that was a part of the music, you know, that was a part of like the whole thing. So, um, uh, let me see. So by the time I met Ross G, I, I had graduated from high school. I went to engineering school. I was working at a studio in Hollywood called Music Grinder. Music Grinder was like a professional recording studio. So um, during this time, like I was 
basically working with Death Row. So Death Row rented our studio for, I don't know, like a year. <clears throat> and we did like everything from the Dogfather and after the Dogfather. So Tupac, when Tupac died, he, we, he was working at our studio. Dang. So like we would see him on weekends. Tupac would come in and we would do Tupac stuff. He would be with the outlaws doing all, all this off stuff, like working with all these crazy, like unknown artists. Damn. And so like, yeah, so we, we did a lot of that. So while I was working at the studio, remember, like, I remembered like, you know, back in high school, I was going to Project Blow and, you know, hanging out there. So, so I'm like, check out Project Blow again. This is like, I think All Balls Don't Bounce, AC Alone's album, All Balls Don't Bounce. This was around that era now. And then I started going back to Project Blow and then Ross G was the DJ at this time. And then that's when I got close to him. But like Project Blowed, I mean. That was a spot. Yeah, it was the spot for us. It was the spot because like for us, we were too young to go to the good lock. But we were coming in the age as Project Blowed was developing. The thing about Blowed is for producers is like you would you would go there. I mean, maybe you couldn't even get in. I'm talking about when I was in high school and you would hear the songs and it would sound like nothing you ever heard before. Kind of like what Koopma was playing when I first met Koopma. That's what it sounded like on the outside of Project Blow, just listening to like the the bass and the, like whatever was going on. It was like it didn't sound like anything you'd ever heard, you know, like no Wu-Tang, no uh, high row. It didn't sound like any of that. It just sounded dirty and mm-hmm. big and grimy. And so, like, I feel like that thing is kind of what got into G and, and me a little bit. Like we wanted to make that sound. You know, not the sound right. that was actually being played, but the sound that we thought we were hearing. You know, <laughs> like not that sure. dirty. Yeah, yeah. So, but uh, anyway, G was more successful at getting at that than me. <laughs> those, those through the wall bass lines. <laughs> yeah, those, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But it was also really intimidating. Like those dudes, like, I don't know, if, maybe for me, um, like going there, like wasn't always like a pleasant experience. Like there's a lot of... <laughs> There's a lot of aggression and, 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 you know, macho bullshit. Like I felt like, oh. you know, but I, well, which is, which is, yeah. which is, you know, as an MC, you kind of have to have that, you know, but um, yeah. The, uh, it's, with Sketchbook- it's battle. It's battle environment. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a war going on, man. And not only that, <clears throat> the world stage is right around the corner. And it's the same thing there. You know what I mean? The world stage, Billy Higgins at the time. So Check this out. I'm studying jazz piano with Bobby Bradford at PCC. And so I, I had like two clicks. Wow. When I met G, I was studying jazz. But earlier, I was when I was going to Project Lord, I wasn't. So I didn't even know about the world stage back then. But then when I met G, I was studying jazz piano. I started going to the world stage. And um, so it was the same shit, dude. Like you would go in there and they have their, their Thursday night jam sessions, right? <clears throat> You say you play the piano. Let's say you play the guitar. One time I went in there, this dude wanted to play guitar. He sat down, plugged in his guitar. He started playing. They were like, uh, what song you want to play? Uh, all the things you are. So they start playing all the things you are. By the time it got to this dude's solo, he's soloing. Right in the middle of his solo, someone unplugs him. <laughs> and then the piano wow. like starts soloing on top of him. And then some. you see, you look at dude and someone's whispering in his ear. And you know they're saying like come back next week when you like go go practice you know <laughs> that's how it was there man so it was there it was like that there it's like a showtime at the apollo you know but at, at at project blow you get on the mic and they don't like you the whole audience starts screaming please pass the mic they start chanting 
please pass the mic. <laughs> so yeah, it was. You're right. They did that to Fat Joe, right? That was a uh, good life. Yeah. Fat, well, they did that to Fat Joe at Good Life. Oh, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah. I mean that. Yeah, the please pass the mic thing guess, was inherited. Dude, I seen. Uh, uh, who was it? Nas get booed at. You get know? the fuck out! Come yeah. on. Yeah, Nas. They were like, Stupid. they were like, get out of here. We don't want Nas. That is that's really a fact that's the most LA shit I've ever heard in my life. Like, get yeah, the dude. fuck out of here. You, just check this out. Check this out. You know who performed the same? Haters uh, was uh, remember that kid from Wu Tang, uh, the rugged uh, child, Shaheem. Shaheem. That dude got love that night, and Nas got booed. <laughs> I I've heard that <laughs> story. I think Coleman. Yeah, might, I, I think Coleman might have told me that story. That rings a bell now. Yeah, yeah. Did yeah. Nas pick the wrong? Did Nas pick the wrong beats? <laughs> nah, he picked the wrong city, man. <laughs> yeah, but that's how. But but like, I don't think people really understand. People don't understand. You know, when I talk to people in in Europe, and I'm kind of like my. You know, I'm. I still have a little bit of that inside me where I'm kind of standoffish until I'm impressed. And that, that's how it was back then. Like you ain't the same way. You, you ain't shit. Like what like what's up? What you got? And then yeah. okay, you know, like you can get either get shut up quick with skill or continue, you know, just like not nah, come back next week in a sense, you know. Um, but people call, uh, but I feel like a hater sometimes because you, like you know, you can't fake like your the feeling like there's goosebumps or right. not. Like not that oh. every not not that everything has to be goosebump uh inducing but this is shit you feel it's also your mood you know sometimes you're just not you know you're just not there but um anyway yeah la la is really hard to play you know and i'm glad i'm glad i you know dealt with it yeah i'm glad i'm glad like you know i had to earn everyone's respect coming in late it's interesting because you had to navigate that world too and i think like see here's the thing though like here's the thing uh the there was there was good life, there was Project Blow, and then there was Sketchbook. Sketchbook at the room, right? And then and then at Little Temple Bar later. But check this out. The reason, uh, and then on the outside of that, which doesn't really get that much talk, is Juju, and uh, Brown no doubt, right, right, no, nope. yes, right. So that was the Soul Children. So that was sort of like the black people doing the, you know, the 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 different thing. You know, that what that non-popular thing, the more underground thing, you know. Yeah. But like, but when I was talking to G at Project Blow and he was telling me, like, oh yeah, Koopma is playing what I, you know, playing that shit. And then we go up and we see you. Uh, eventually I start to understand, like, oh, Koopma is is the next, you know, and Koopma is is like doing like he he's doing what no one else is doing he's putting like what they say paint where there ain't you know what i'm saying for real like, wow, i've never heard that so that's yeah. that's when i got hip to like oh shit there's something new brewing brewing and then that's yeah that's when we all start you know what here i'll tell you a funny story we we're hanging out outside uh project blow one time after rashi dj and me and g were like yo man you want to go up to the room up in uh up in Hollywood. And so Project Bloat is in South LA, you know, it's in Lamar Park. And I remember one of the guys who was in the circle when we were having this conversation, black guy, he says, oh yeah, Ross G be going up to Hollywood, hanging out with all his white folks now, you know? And so like, you can see, yeah, yeah. And wow. you know, you can see like, you know, even for Ross G, like he's stepping outside of, you know, but he's answering a call that he needs to answer, you know? 
he needs to go to that music and Kutmo had it. And so no matter what anybody said, he didn't give a fuck. You know, we were going, we were going to the room. That's crazy. That's, uh, that's a really good point actually. Like that, that kind of geographical demarcation. Yeah. In LA, I mean, was, I can imagine yeah, that if you say I'm going to the room in Hollywood, people are going to interpret that as being a certain way, regardless of what you're going to. Because I mean, even that was also um, there was that um, what was that party called? The one that the Brickhastra used to do. Um, oh, oh, down the down the root down the root down. Thank you, thank you. Because that I mean the Casbah, if I remember correctly, I mean it's not that's kind of not super far from the where the room was, right? Um, it's still like that kind of hot sort of kind of Hollywood because I think you say Hollywood and people think Hollywood, but actually there are like shades. There were shades and there are shades to Hollywood to a degree. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And that was Coots, you know what I'm saying? Right. Right. That was him. That was him. I mean, um, yeah, man. And then that's how, I, that's how I met take two. But right. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I this this story is like, I don't want to get all over the place. You know? oh, it's so good. Man. <laughs> actually, uh, before we can move on but but the last thing on project blood was um what other producers did you meet there did you meet because i know like db was there and there were like people like elvin nobody was there so i was kind of curious if you met anybody else on the producer tip so okay so when i met ross g at project blow um diabolic dibiase he he was doing exactly what he was doing at sketchbook he was doing the exact same thing boomba yeah boomba i mean so like (laughs) At first, so like when I was <laughs> when I was in high school, outside of Project Blow was just a a, a a rap cipher. Dudes would just be rapping in a cipher. But then once Rashid started DJing at Project Blow, DiBiase was now playing uh, his beats on his boombox outside in that cipher. So at first you have a cipher that was boomboxing. I mean beatboxing, and then you have a cipher where he actually has a boombox playing his beats that he made. And they all sound like Dilla-esque, you know? Sure, sure. <laughs> and you know he's coming because you can literally hear the snare drum coming around the corner. Like, you know Diabot's about to... Yeah. That snare drum <laughs> is just reverberating off the buildings, you know? It's like, oh, here he comes, you know? So yeah, DiBiase was one of the producers that was like okay. most notable uh, there at Project Blow. And so, I mean, it's sort of like, I'm telling you, I think Ross G brought that world to Sketchbook, you know, because I don't think those guys would have found out about Sketchbook if it hadn't been for Ross G. No doubt. So, right, right. Um, now you, could ver- you could verify this. Koopa was Stan coming around before Ross G? Where did Sacred Sacred start? I actually knew Sacred because of uh, Aaron's. I used to spend I used to spend a lot of money in Aaron's. Um, that's how I met Take also. 
So Stan was actually about, um, but def definitely, definitely DiBiase, uh, Doc Kim. Um, but they know, were later. See, Doc Kim didn't start coming until the second sketchbook. That's true. Little Temple Bar. But it's because of G. Yeah, G yeah, yeah. G yeah. bought him. No doubt. No doubt. No doubt. No. Yeah, because no, that all makes sense. I think I was going to say the other person who's also kind of a connection in many ways is Coleman. Stan was, and Coleman were neighbors at that time. That's right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. Coleman is the Coleman is the key. And then, like you were saying, Chris, as well, I think you, you reminded me when you were talking about those parties, there was um, Coleman's party. Firecracker? Yeah, Firecracker. Yeah, Firecracker, right. That's right. Some good memories there, baby. Same, man. <laughs> that was a good time. Yeah. That's, I, I, I was the opening DJ for about four years. So that's how I learned. That's where you cut your teeth, right? To play for two people, for five people, for six people, for eight for people. people like to kind of, yeah, because there were dancers that would come in. Um, oh, what's that dude's name? Ah, damn it. There's a lot of dancers used to come early. And screw face me, just walk in, screw face. Like, what, do, yeah. what are you? What are you gonna do? And I was like, damn, I just got, I just got here. You know, I'm just trying to. I want to play at least four records before someone, you know, starts. I, now I gotta entertain someone, you know. But I understand it's Friday night, so people come in, and so you know, it was a lot of pressure um, early on. Like even for opening set, like I had to do something interesting, you know, for you know, because luckily the freestyle dancers and I miss them so much is. You know, they don't just stand around and fist pump. They're they're in it. Like they come yeah. to to like zone out. And that's a really. I think this is something that's also missing. Is you know, I remember Cody Chestnut used to come to Sketchbook. I um, mean, bullshit. No, sorry, to Firecracker, and with incense holders, and he would bless the fucking speakers and stand in front of them, and you know what I mean. And Black Eyed Peas would come and like you know because J Logic knew the peas, so they would come to uh, Firecracker and like start a circle, start a circle. Like it was really beautiful. It was a really beautiful time. Like yeah. really, it was well, really dope. Project Blow, there. That was the thing. Project Blow was a lot about dancing too. I was it? I had so, no idea. Yeah, when, when we say dancing, we're talking about like hip hop dancing. Now, like I feel like at Firecracker, that was like. Uh, like your typical club dancing, like there's some girls over here I want to dance with. But early on, the freestyle dancers, like there'd be like three or four, but they they would just be oh, okay. they would be ready, yeah, and like it wouldn't it wasn't about bumping and grinding and like doing the Friday, right? Thing, right. <laughs> which I'm not I'm not the DJ for that anyway. Like Jesus. So what were some um, early early on like Young Monk? You know what ta what tapes or what. Like what music we, you know, because I, when I was a kid, I listened to radio. I had no idea about, you know, I was, I was listening to Kiss FM and then I got to K Day and then changed my life forever, you know. So, like, what was a moment, you know, that switched for you musically? Word, word. Well, early, so like, uh, so I'm born into like a musical family. My dad, my granddad was a minister in the church, right? So, like, uh, my mother, when I was really young, she's like, uh, you got to play an instrument. What instrument do you want to play? It wasn't a choice for me. I, I had to play an instrument. So um, I chose uh, the piano. So I started getting piano lessons early. And then I was eventually playing drums at church, you know. So that's where it all started for me. Um, but um, early on, I felt like I wanted to be Quincy Jones, you know. Somehow I got wind of Quincy Jones, what Quincy Jones was doing, what his job was. And I just wanted to be that, you know, 
uh, whatever Quincy does, that's what I want to do. So then I started on that path. So I was learning all instruments. What age is this? Oh, I was in like elementary school or when I started then middle school. I played in marching band all through middle school and I played marching band through high school. All while playing, uh, I played drum in drumline and in, 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 uh, in high school. And then at church, I would play drums at church every Sunday and on Thursdays for choir rehearsal. So I'm, wow. those are the skills that I was developing. And then I had uh, homies that we, we, again, we were like a part of a like dance crew. So I didn't really have DJ friends until I met Ross G. So it was just music. And then it became DJ, a DJ hip hop world when I met Ross G. But going back, like K-Day like was my first initiation to hip hop. And then so I used to listen to that every as often as I could. My mom didn't like me listening to it because she's a heavy Christian. You know, my mom was a choir director, the choir. So uh, and like I said, my grandfather was a minister. So I come from that world. Uh, so whenever K, whenever I get a chance, my mom's in the shower, I turn on K-Day. <laughs> you know, listen for a while. Special egg, you know what I'm saying? And all this stuff they were playing back then. That was like early '90s, late '80s, maybe '88, '89. Okay. And then, um, and then I think in uh, so De La Soul was out at this uh, at this time. De La Me myself X Clan. No, well, and that would have been when I was in high school. X Clan would have come out. Uh, no, no, yeah, yeah, early high school. Yeah, uh, X Clan came out, but. When I decided I wanted to be a producer, is my mother got married to a, a music the, the musical minister at our church, and this dude, you know, when I moved in with them, he had a studio, and he had like a little mini studio, so I would always go in there and like fuck, try to mess around, try to make hip hop unsuccessfully because he didn't have anything that was you know that you could like he didn't have an SP you know <laughs> or anything like that. He had this TR nine hundred nine, which I thought sounded like shit, but everybody uses it now. Like that's like the sound of now the TR-808, TR-909, that, that drum. But back then, we didn't want to hear it. Me and my homies was like, nah, man, that ain't it. But eventually, I was building up equipment, and we started, like, like my, my grandmother bought me a sampler, and so we would just loop shit and rap over it <laughs> when I was in high school. It was a Roland's uh, keyboard sampler. I don't remember, like, the name of it, but it literally had four banks, one second each bank. I don't know what the hell you're supposed to do with one second, right? But it had it was a four second sampler, so you can only you can actually loop four seconds. That's what we would do, and then we would chop the loop in half and half it for like a bridge, and then bring the whole loop back, you know, for the for the song, you know. So and and, and your source seconds. and your source of sound was records. Oh yeah, so um, yeah yeah, so like I was living in Pomona at the time, so we were going up to uh, oh shit. There was a store on Second Street that sold records in, in Pomona at that time. And then um, I can't remember the name of this store. It'll come to me later. But there was a bigger store in, in uh, Upland over by the college. So you're asking me like early influence. Like so when I was in when I was in high school, there's a local college station at Scripps or at uh, Pomona College. And they would play. all. They had a hip hop show in there. You, you know, DJ Drez. DJ of Dre, course, Dre. yes, of course. I think he was on that show. Oh wow! He would be playing. I used, I used to buy uh, dress tapes all the time, man. Dress is ill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So like that—that that was going on. So we were hip to we were hip to what was going on. So I was at that time I was rapping, dancing, 
and then producing. And so like my earliest, I guess, influences probably would have been, I really liked everything BDP did, you know, like everything Boogie Down Productions was doing. Yeah. Then Clan, then, uh, then of course Tribe, De La Soul. Um, that was, that was our, those were the people we were connecting with. So mm-hmm. like to contrast that with like King T, uh, uh, South Central Cartel, NWA, DJ Quick. So we were listening to the hip hop New York stuff when all my cousins and friends, we were, they were listening to LA stuff. So that's when that kind of early riff started to happen between LA and, and like hip hop and rap or LA and New York or East Coast and West Coast. But so I was on the, I was on the West Coast, I was on the East Coast side of that front, you know? And um, so just to fast forward a little bit, when I graduated from high school, I went to engineering school in Arizona. I went to the Conservatory of Recording, Arts and Science. And uh, I got a degree in audio engineering. Then I got hired at the Music Grinder in Hollywood. So like before, before this time, I was all hip hop. So we were when I was in school, I got my hands on an MPC 60. We made a demo, you know, it was my first time on an MP, you know, and I'm like, yeah, this is, this is what I want to do. When I started working at this studio and I met uh, Kevin Lewis, Kevin Lewis is like Suge Knight's right-hand man. When I met him, it changed, it changed my whole world. It changed my whole concept of, of of what a producer is, you know? And also like uh, that studio used to do rock albums. So like, the Foo Fighters and uh, Kiss. Like when I first started working, Kiss was there. You know, Gene Simmons and, and those dudes. Yeah, they were working on the last album with this producer named Toby. And I used to kick it with Toby. And so between Toby and Kevin Lewis, they gave me this new concept of what a producer does and and should be expected from a producer. Like what the job is, you know. So uh, that's when I started more so getting into like West Coast rap. Okay. Because I was actually in the studio watching Daz and these guys put the music together. So I was getting a res- I was gaining the respect for like their craft, how they were put. I, Cause I used to think like, oh man, oh, they're just stealing people's songs. They're not doing anything. And, you know, they're not, you know, they're not looping up anything. The drums, the drums aren't dirty, you know, blah, that, that's where I was. When also, I first also it. maybe the subject matter for me, a lot of it was the subject oh, the matter. Subject, I, I didn't relate to any of that shit when I lived in Absolutely. LA, but now that I'm out of LA, like I love that shit, to, you know, I, mm-hmm. Nate, I, I listen to Nate weekly. You know what I mean? Like, um, um, but at the time, I just didn't relate to it at all. Um, yeah, same, same here, same here. Um, but what ended up happening for me is, is at that time in my life, I was living with my cousin who was like a he was a crip <laughs> in the neighborhood. So, and we lived in a real like hot house. So, like people used to come around. So, like. So at this time, um, I'm living with my cousin. He's a crib and all my friends are coming over to the house and all his friends are coming over to the house. All my friends are wanting to hear hip hop shit. So we're playing project. We're playing Freestyle Fellowship, AC Alone. We're, we're way into that style. You know, it's a local style, but we're we're like students of that style, you know. Mm-hmm. And then my cousin and them, they're all listening to SIBO and fucking E-40, uh, brother lynch hung all this all this kind of stuff you know this weird this weird off gangster kind of thug music you know so we have these two worlds colliding for me you know and then my day job is at the studio where 
death row has just booked the studio for a year, you know? So uh, on, on the weekends, I throw parties for these, for these gangsters and they didn't want to hear any hip hop. And all I had was like two tape decks. So I would, I would mix between two tapes for these gangster parties. <laughs> what? And they didn't hear any fucking. That could have ended. Head. That could have ended badly, man. That's a tough situation to be in. Dude, they were violent about not wanting to hear hip hop. Like, what is it? Like, I'll play Camp Low. This is it. What? They'd be like, what is this shit? Turn that shit off now. You know, <laughs> put on, you know, anything else, you know? And so that's, I had to get a sensibility of like what was good about this music, gangster rap, what made it powerful? Why did they like it? What did I like? What might I like about it? You know what I'm saying? So um, that's, so I started producing gangster rap for my cousin's friends. And so like, check this out. This is really interesting. Um, after I met, when I met G, he came over to my house for the very first time. Cause he knew he, this is before Ross G had an MPC. Yeah. Came over to my house for wow. the very first time. I'm playing beats and, uh, you know, Ross G before this, he would say, man, I'm gonna get an MP. I already know what I'm going to do. He would say it all the fucking time. I don't know if you remember Ross before he had the MP, but he no. would always say that. He'd be like, yeah, I'm going to get an MP. I'm saving up for it. Wow. And I know what I'm going to do. I got Damn. beats already. I wouldn't Damn. believe it because, you know, a lot of people say that shit. You know what I mean? No, but you know. now think about it and what you knew. Yeah. Come on, man. That's wow. <laughs> not even now. Like, I knew, like, immediately after he got his MPC like that. Oh, shit. He's not joking. You know? <laughs> so you but, heard it. Anyway. You heard his his early his first beats then. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. I went. Remember, he used to live in that place in Carson. He had a little shed and he yep. used to he made that shed his studio. And he used to do beats. He used to be in there all day doing beats. I used to go hang out with him after work. <laughs> um, do you have those photos? Um, I have Mar one photo, and I gotta find it from I have, him. I, ha that I have the full set that um, um, for secondhand short shots. Frosty. Oh yeah. Did, uh, he did a whole photo shoot, so I have the whole That's set. Right. Yeah. I, I send yeah. it over. Yeah. I used to just show up with a camera and take a photo, and he'd be like, you know. <laughs> but yo, so he comes over to my house. Very first time. Think about this. I've been making beats now. I don't know, two or three years. Like I got an MPC, you know, I got a little setup, you know, it's not great, but it's a little setup and I'm doing my thing. It's a lot more than what he has. Right. Come over to my house, playing beats for maybe, I don't know, four or five hours. And when we get, we get to the end of that four or five hours, he, he goes, yeah, man, I'm not feeling any of that. I'm not feeling nice. <laughs> like, yeah. like we do. I've been playing this dude beats for like hours. And he's like, yeah, nah, none of that shit's dope. <laughs> oh shit. Yeah. Oh, I love it. How you, think, how you think that shit made me feel? You know what I mean? But oh I my god. Say, like, really, like you were talking about like goosebumps earlier and how there's this there's this thing about dopeness to Ross. And to you, I think it has to be dope no matter what. It has to get you from the beginning. It, there's no thinking about it, right? So um, to just kind of connect the whole story, I feel I feel like I didn't really understand what how to be dope or what dope was until I met Ross G. Wow. You know wow. what I'm saying? That's yeah. a big thing for me to say because I couldn't say that then. Yeah. Sure. Wow. So um, so uh Check this out. This is what's, what, what connects this whole thing. So one day, this is fast forward past that first meeting of ours. You know, now we've been hanging out and we've been kicking it for, I don't know, some months now. 
he comes over and I'm making, I remember earlier I was living with my cousin and I used to make gangster rap beats. So these dudes are still coming around. Were those the, the beats you I, played G? Sorry to cut you off, but were those the beats you were playing G was the gangster shit? I didn't shit. play, I didn't play, yeah, I didn't play G any of that gangster shit I was making. None of it. I was just playing in the, the hip hop kind of shit that I was trying to make that I, that I thought was dope, right? But wasn't. <laughs> 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 so, um, G comes over one day and I'm working with these dudes from my old neighborhood, these, these crypt dudes. It's Trey Loco, Wishbone, and Cal Loco. It's like straight, but hardcore crypts, you know? And uh, we're working on a song. G comes in, he kicks it for about an hour. When those dudes leave, G goes, man, that's the hottest shit I've ever heard you make right there. <laughs> that's <laughs> dope. So then when he said that, that's when I started to merge the worlds. And, yeah. I, and I was like, this is going to be the monk music sound. I'm going to merge that world with my whack world, <laughs> you know, and see if I can make that work. Essentially, it's just hip hop and synthesizers. And I think people who do that really well, better than I do, is like Sarah. Sure. They were they did, they did it exceptionally well. So, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, even goes back to guys like Battle Cat, right, who helped shape mm -hmm. a lot of the early sound of LA to a degree, I think. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. He's, he's somebody that I think outside of LA isn't necessarily well known, but in LA, everybody always kind of points to him as one of the roots of those, the kind of synth heavy LA sound. Yeah. Also, also his swing, his swing is crazy. Right. Oh yeah. He has a nasty swing. Yeah. But I guess in your case, uh, then Chris, you're talking about sort of like those more kind of like dusty beats and things like that but with some of that synthesizer kind of LA funk type thing, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, no, yeah, I, I hear always you. Do more melodic stuff. Right. I right. feel like, uh, it's like I told you, I studied jazz. So like in jazz, you have avant-garde, you have bebop and straight ahead. I feel like what G was trying to get at was more of like with his own personal style was avant-garde. Oh, for sure. It to jazz. Mm -hmm. no, and then for what sure. I was trying to get at was more of that straight ahead with the art blakey kind of that was more of the di direction you know I mean, in a way as well, sort of like, that's kind of what ended up happening with the beat scene. I think, you know, there was obviously that moment where to go back to what you were saying, or even to go back to like, um, Justin's slogan for sketchbook, which was like dirty beats, you know, it, there was that moment, but I think early 2010s and onwards, you start to see a lot of people move towards this thing of then bringing like melody and things like that back into the mix in a kind of very serious way. And I think, you know, 
that that potential was always there but there was definitely i think a, a good few years where everybody was just wanted that kind of dirty heaviness um right you know and wanted well, to hear that stuff loud which was the other thing but the you know it's also an interesting story here i think that doesn't really get talked about is this through line of hip-hop uh and 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 european hip-hop so okay. like so like i think earlier on you have de la so and they would do a b-side with like say delight and it would be mm -hmm. like a like a house song you have q-tip mm -hmm. on the song whatever so that's i think that's a through line straight to yeah you know kuma playing uh dim light or kuma playing you know red nose district remember them yep, yeah of course yeah yeah stuff. it's like it, the same hip-hop kids that are you know are a part of this and then remember like uh, when uh madlib comes back from europe he makes dj rails and this this it's right. this housey kind of record you know what i mean for sure yeah. and that's like that's sort of eric coleman's kind of world of, mm -hmm. of yeah no, DJing, you know what i'm saying so yeah. it's like all these worlds are colliding you know uh europe and and la and it's always been happening but because of the internet myspace and stuff if there was now we can meet these people right what's what? my man's name uh yeah it, you know it, you know you know what i'm saying like you, Lauren, you know? yeah, yeah. No, no for real i mean another thing that was i think also parallel to what you just said is uh is like timberland and the whole virginia sound like for example in europe that like mid to late 2000 was a huge thing for a lot of djs because it it was the kind of hip-hop sound that could bridge the dance music world and like the hip hop slash pop world. And so yeah. a lot of, a lot of electronic DJs or DJs that you wouldn't think of as hip hop DJs would always play like Timberland, Neptune shit, because that was a really, and I think also like sonically, those guys definitely also had a little bit of that electronic at, at the pop level, they helped to also create that bridge between hip hop and electronic music and i know that for example in la that wasn't necessarily as hot but like elvin is like nobody is a good example of i think someone who was early yeah. on kind of heard that and he heard and then you know obviously then you kind of hear that when low end theory becomes the thing and those guys are definitely that's part of the mix for the kind of low end stuff and I mean, low end theory is in the club, not no, as in the, uh, the trap called Quest album. Yeah, Elvin, Elvin was always playing those Neptunes instrumentals, and it took me a while. He was saying, yeah, he said it he took used me to, used forever. to you, like, yeah, because yeah. I like I like dissonance, I like things in the distance. Yeah. You know, I, it's like it's all right there, it's all in front of me, and it's. But if you listen to some, there's there's a whole heap, oh. no whole heap, but there's no, no, a no. bunch of like Here's Neptunes bonus beats that are like kind no, no, of no. like that. No, absolutely, but. The thing is about what El going back to Elvin playing the records, and this is how I, I can get into this is a true sign of a good DJ is like he would trick me and like he would right. mix in this Neptune shit under a dim light, and I would be like, Oh, fuck, what's that? He's <laughs> like, Yeah, this is that Neptune's track you said you hated, and I'm like, Ah, fuck, shit, you know. So, you know, it, it took me a while, and I, I mean, right. now, I, now I love Neptunes, I have a huge amount of respect for Chad, I'll put it that way. Oh, while I'm thinking about this, I remember times when we'd be out. People talk about sketchbook and DBIC being on the outside with the boombox. Yeah, but there, there, I'm telling you, there would be times when any number of uh, producer or DJ be outside with di with diabolic and so, and whatever was being heard coming from inside the place would totally 
uh, distract what was happening on the outside. And everybody would just be like, what the fuck is this? And then dudes would just go in and just see what Coop was playing, you know? <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> all the time, dude, all the time. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, you so, know. Yeah, even though uh, there was that club going on outside, man, it, it was not like in any way like trying to disrespect from it's like some of the stuff, oh, yeah, we know that joint. Oh, we don't know. What's this? And run inside and see what's up. Right, right. You know, and Kuma wouldn't tell you anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was backing out my records and everything back then. Pain, yeah, the label. Man, pain. yeah. I mean, <laughs> but that was that was the era. Like, you know, back then, if Coleman played a record, I wouldn't play it with Coleman in the building. Like if I knew. Really? Like, yeah. If, if Gaslamp played something, if if I if I've seen J-Rock flip doubles of something i'm like nah that's his record like i can't even touch that you know yeah, so i, yeah, I and yeah. I, so you know i was being protective of certain things you know sometimes you find that one that you know you know what i mean back then it's it's different than now i don't care but but isn't sure. it yeah now isn't it crazy though how the rules change it's like for a long time you're you're honoring these rules and then technology says ah yeah who cares <laughs> but technology in the next i mean it's the same thing what is it there's the there's like you can only sample from the original record not from a reissue and all that shit right and then there was a, exactly. then the next generation's like no fuck you i'm taking the ultimate breaks and beats and i'm making a record <laughs> with it and then the next generation's like fuck you i'm sampling youtube and i'm making a record with it so it's like yeah yeah i remember you know. when justin asked me one time he's like hey man do you sample off of like already records that are already out <laughs> you know Wait, i <laughs> like, said did that? you get a kick from a record that was already out and i didn't want to tell him i did I was like, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if anything's if anything's open, I'm taking it. Like I saw an interview yeah. with Madlib, and he's like, if anything's open, I'm taking it. I was like, yeah, I like yeah. that. I like yeah. that because because I'm, I'm not I'm not a producer. I just like making beats. It's the same as tennis. It's I just want to do it. I don't think right. about. I don't think like yeah, I'm this guy or I'm this person. It's just right. pure joy. I love doing it. The whole f act of finding a sample and trying to you know what I mean? because back then especially if you're talking about like the k-day era there was a lot of samples that were being reused a lot of drum loops that are being reused back then and like oh i'm gonna freak this sample this way and yeah you know that's where i come from and like i think you come from also um oh yeah plastics oh that too yeah absolutely thinking of k-day back then we were sampling pause tape doing pause tapes from k-day shit yeah like it would be there was a beat and there was a second open wow. on that beat you would record it and then you would just you know keep looping it and then you and your homies could rap to it that Wait, was so middle school we were doing that in middle school so when did you and you were rapping over these these loops yeah what was your mc yeah. name <laughs> i had a bunch i had a bunch uh uh i got my i got my pen and paper i got my pen and paper let's go i want to hear this <laughs> The most notable was uh, Q-Bra. Q-Bra is Q-B-R-A-B. Q-Q, it's, it's barbecue spelled backwards. <laughs> <laughs> you you got that from Chugoy. You got that from Chugoy. Yeah. You had to. So, but I used to barbecue back in the day for the homies. So they used to call me barbecue. And then I was like, that's whack. I don't want to be called barbecue. So I put it backwards and they called me Q. Q-Bra. <laughs> that's funny. People. That, that's some people a, in Lamert Park, I walk down Lamert. Some people will still call me that. Damn, <laughs> that's dope. It's, it's, it's hilarity. Do you still go to Lamert often? I live in Lamert. So you see G often then? 
Yeah, I, wow. I see. You him see them. You week. see the wow, wow, wow. See the mural. I see his his spirit is still around. He really has such a a strong presence here when he was here and still now. You yeah, know? I love that. Really, it's remarkable. I love you know, that to know to know him. You know, mm -hmm. to know how he's affected. You know, like other people in the same way that he's affected you. It's more like. Your relationship with Ross G is more like spiritual, you know, For real. Then if you know him, it's more of a spiritual relationship, you know, than, uh, than just a regular friendship, you know, it's For deeper real. than, uh, mm -hmm. I feel like, yeah, yeah. I don't want to start crying and shit, but I feel Man. like I, I lost someone that I can't talk to about very specific things that are important to me, you know, yeah. and I, there's no one else that can really replace that, you know? But uh, and I hate that I learned that I came uh, closer to these feelings after his passing, you know. No, but you uh, know, but you know, the yeah, thing is, yeah, but you yeah. know, and you can hear the voice. You hear his voice. You totally uh, hear yeah. his voice. So and you know the answer, you know what I mean? So, I, you know, I wouldn't be too sad about it because yeah. he, he's always around. You know what I mean? It's always around because <laughs> as a, because, you know, it's, just, you know, it's simple, you know. I often yeah. think about um, at the um, memorial show that took place in Highland Park. Um, I think it was Eagle Nebula who was like, he's happy now because he's an ancestor, you know, and that I, I've always, I think that that was like the best kind of summary, right? It's like, you know, he's yeah. happy now because he's an ancestor. Like, and that's, yeah. that's, yeah. I think to me, like when I hear you say that, Justin, it's kind of like, that's what I think about. It's exactly that. Like he, or even when you were saying, Chris, about this spiritual connection, I think it's that, like, G was somebody that you read and read you. Obviously, yeah. you talked, and I know, you know, there's plenty of people who will tell you he was a hilarious motherfucker and you could hang out with him and for hours. But I think there was also that kind of a thing of, like, you know, he had that kind of relationship with, with people, like you say, Chris, where it was, like, a very spiritual thing where there was, uh, there was an understanding to a degree, I think, once, once you yeah. got to know him. I mean, he was going to yeah. become, he was either going to make beats or become a priest, correct? I didn't know about the priest part. Wow. I don't, what? I'd never I heard the priest the story either. Um, Frosty priest, told me. Priest of the beats. Frosty, told you? Frosty, oh, really? Frosty was also the same thing. He said the same thing about wow. himself. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. There I you go. Not, I, I mean, I can see it. You know what? He's a real, like, he's my real brother. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you're only blessed to have a few friends in your life, like a handful, like close, mm -hmm. really, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, they don't judge you. They don't, you know, they just like, they love who you are, just you. Not, they don't care if you made beats or didn't make beats. It's just you. Mm -hmm. And so there's only a few of those you get. And I felt like G and I sort of had that, you know, it, did, it didn't matter, you know, we it did nothing matter. We just were just, it's just cool, you know, but, uh, he helped me out a lot. Not even, not even with the dope. Like when I told you about becoming dope, you know, right. not just with becoming dope. He also helped me recover, you know, when I lost my way in life, you know, he was there, you know, for me, Damn. Unju unjudging, you know, just there to help and, and, uh, and kind of encourage me back and, you know, and he did. And when I got back, I call him and now we can't hang and you know. Yeah. It's, just, it's a yeah, shame anyway. we it's a shame we never got to see G on the tennis court. I would pay 
top, top dollar to fucking to, to serve never, against man, G. Never, I would love never. to hit one serve against G, man. You would wow, you would definitely hit him. <laughs> So I wanted to talk to you. I mean, you kind of touched on it. I guess a lot of the stories, well, a lot of stories, stories that I heard from G and Ron were like, you know, G telling me that kind of what you mentioned where he was just starting with the beats. So DJing upload and, you know, wanting to get into beats and wanting to buy the MP and all that. And he didn't have a CD burner, I think. And one of the stories he told me is that he went to your place to record a mix, I think, or something like that. Is that... That sounds likely. Yeah. And then it was through that that you also, you introduced him to Ron because I think it was related to this mix. I forget the exact details of the story. You introduced G to Ron or Ron to G? Yeah. 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 But then tell the story. Tell the story the way that you remember it because I haven't heard your version. Well, I I don't, I don't remember the exact mix that G's talking about, but I'm I'm sure we did that, you know, because he didn't. He didn't have a ton of resources. He got the MP and then he was just making beats and yeah, ton of records already. Um, and so, but, but before this time, so like I would say, so I told you I worked at this studio when I got, when I left the studio, um, I was working at a bookstore that, that was the time when Ron and I met. And so Ron, so when I met Ron, let me think. He was working, was working at, at the other store, right? Ron was like... Oh, yeah, that's right. I was right. working at Borders, the bookstore. Ron was working at Canterbury Records. That's it, Canterbury. But, but yeah, there was a record store that had been there forever called Canterbury Records in, in Pasadena. And they sold records, CDs, and and, vid- and and like VHS, whatever. They had old shit, you know? That, so if you were a digger, you would go there. You would make it, you would make it there eventually, right? Um and there was Moby Disc and Pooba. Uh, but Ron didn't own Pooba at the time. And so um, let me remember now. Um, Ron was also repairing clarinets. Ron was an instrument repair person. What? Yeah. So I did he, not know yeah, that. He's, yeah. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> That's sick. Yeah. Ron's ass used to be repairing wow. clarinets and instruments and stuff at some other at some other spot. But um and he was DJing too at the time. He was like learning how to like, but not like like how you DJ. He was learning how to like scratch and shit. So he was trying to get hella good with the scratching and the and all the different. I don't know the terminologies for the different scratches, but he was learning. 
turntablism. Turntablism. There yeah. You go. So that's what he was into. Like you know those. What were those guys? The scratch, uh, scratch pickles. pickles. Yeah. Yeah. All that stuff. I wasn't into none of that. I was into <laughs> <just> music <laughs> when I met him. But um, so it, he had an MPC. So I had an MP and he had an MP. And so I would go over to his house and make beats. And he would scratch and I would make beats. I don't wow. remember how we met, who brought us together. But, oh, my homie Damon, this other rapper kid that I used to work with, met Ron. And then we would go over to Ron's house. And bring beats and rap and shit at Ron's house, right? And and Ron always had a lot of weed and shit, so we'd be over smoking weed. Dang, the, the dang chamber. The dang chamber, yeah, dude. It literally, <laughs> literally. <laughs> Before, yeah. Anyway, uh, so when I started going to Project Bloat, I met G, and then when G and I, G and I got close, independent of Ron and I's yeah. relationship. Yeah, yeah. And then eventually, Ron. Ron says, uh, I'm going to buy this record shop, Puba, and I want you to come work there to me. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know? So I go in, I start working at Puba with Ron and Ron and I just through conversations and talking, I'm like, yo, man, you, sh- you know, who should work here is Ross G. And he's like, uh, who- who's Ross G. And so then I brought Ross G over to Ron's house. And so we would all start kicking and smoking. And then that's how R- Ron met G. We were all just kicking and smoking at the bank chamber, and then he brought him into Puba. Yeah, that that's that ties up. I mean, well, I always love the part of the story that G told me, which kind of Ron confirmed is that when you first took him to Ron's place for this to record this mix or whatever it was, like G walked into Ron's place and like started going through his records and being G and being like, "This is dope. This is work. Whatever." Like. And, you know, sort of never met the guy before, but just kind of storms into his, not storms, but like walks into his record room and essentially starts yeah. to criticize his, his record collection. Yeah, the records are right there behind Ron in the living room. He stood, Ron, Ron, when you walked into Ron's house, he had a DJ set up in the middle of the living room. So he had a couch next to it and a DJ set up. I don't even think he had a TV at the time. And that's all that we, it's all that we would do is he would DJ and we would smoke weed and kick it. And he had records behind him. And uh, I think that's right. Ross, uh, Ross went up to the records and just start going through records. But you know how Ross is, though. He's going to tell you what he thinks. He's not going to hold any punches. He's not going to pull any punches. It's like you me. said, right? It's like the speeds, like the same way that he did it with you. Like he's that kind Everything of blunt, that that blunt honesty. I think is part was always part of his uh, of his charm. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Well, you knew he wasn't going to. He wasn't going to tell you anything that you just wanted to hear, you know. Right, and if he right. told you something, dope, you know, it was dope. Yeah. And so through doing uh, the reason I kind of wanted to mention all this is because obviously then you guys are working at Pubas and we touched on this a little bit with Tom, but then you all involved with Ron in setting up the label in helping to kind of kickstart oh. the label side of, of Pubas, right? So, yeah. So that, that story is, is this, um, so G and I are now working at Puba every day. G, G's like on MySpace. G's he's <laughs> learning. He's G man for a guy that doesn't drive. You know, he didn't even have a driver's license back then. Right. He was the most. I don't think like, did he ever. Have he stuff? never. He never got his license. Right. I was gonna say. Never. He ever, right. <laughs> yeah. And and yeah. a bus from Carson to Pasadena is at least two and a half hours. Oh least. yeah, easily, easily. Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh my god! Yeah, so people like, don't people don't understand when when people talk about that. Like you have to understand that G like G in the bus in LA, that shit is. They were married in that's, the world. That's levels. That's levels in the world. That's in right. In the world. That's right. He would read whole books. He would be like, "Yeah, I just finished that Central Avenue <laughs> on the bus." You know what I mean? I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, damn, that book is like you know 400 pages or something. You know, it's like a heavy book. He read the whole thing on the bus. You know, but. Your G was advanced, you know, so like um, he was even though like we're all kind of the same age, he's one year older than me, me and G have. I'm I'm uh, December 12th. He's December 13th. So our birthdays are like one day apart. So wow. um, he, but and he's a one year younger than me, but he's more advanced. <laughs> you know, he's quick. He was quick. So like he was on the MySpace. He's finding people. He's like distributors, all this stuff. One stops all that. You know, he was finding getting it going. He's accelerating fast at Pooba, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so we're talking one day, and at the same time, we're making beats and playing beats for each other, you know? And then one day we were talking, I remember this distinctly in, in front of the cash register at Pooba, and it hit me. I was like, dude, we should put out our own record. And he was like, hey, let's do it. He's like, where are we going to get the money? I was like, let's just save up and put a record out. So we, we started doing that, right? And then Ron caught wind of it. Ron was like, oh, you guys want to put a record out? Let's do it. And Ron already had the money. So, <laughs> you know? awesome. so we were like, fuck it. All right, Ron got the money. Let's put the shit out, you know? So that's <laughs> that was how it started. We, we G and I brainstormed it. Ron came in and was like, let's do it. You know, he kind of like put the glue to it, you know? And so we, I, so the first one we did was The Day and Night. I was going to say, which uh, is, uh, was that like the first record on the label? Yeah. Because yeah. I think I remember looking on Discogs and there's like a dank chamber record that is that is. But that's not that's a ten, that's a ten or a that's a forty five. That's a forty five. That's a forty five. Yeah. yeah. But Ron put that out after I believe he put that out after. I want to say, did he do it first or did he do? I mean, this day is Discogs, so you got to take Discogs with a pinch of salt, and it's you know especially I with think like he did it after day and night. Yeah, that no no especially it was also because I think these records like i mean these were like short runs and um and also i don't think the dang chamber 45 says poobah i don't think it actually there's nothing on the back right right it's, it's labeled just, as, it's like it's, hand stamped or right it's labeled as poobas it's labeled as a poobah record okay on discog but that doesn't mean that it says poobah on the on the thing at all anyways the 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 dead night ep that's also that's g's first release right yeah 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 so for that, those who don't that, know, like that's yeah, that split twelve, like three tracks of yours and three tracks of G's, I think is what it was. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That every time the summer summer the sun starts popping out, like after winter, I always throw on the humming in the sun. <laughs> yeah, that was a joint. I mean, that's how I first found out about both of you. I was living in Japan. This would have been oh early oh eight. And I got, there was a, I forget their name. There was this Japanese label who has connections to LA, which has connections to LA. And Jazzy Sport? No, 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 not Jazzy Sport. This is another one. Um, No, they did a D-Day stuff as well. D-Day one. Um, They're basically, they do jazz records. But then there was a guy who worked there who knew about the LA hip hop scene and he released D-Day One's records in Japan. But they did, my point is they did a CD of Puba records 
they did a CD of G's beats from Puba's record, from Puba Records releases, including the Dan Night EP. So there was, it was like 10 tracks of G's and like three of yours. But it was the first, I think, whatever G did on Puba's, the first few records, it was that compiled on the CD. It was called Beats of Mind. Oh, and, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, that's how I found out about, that's how I found out about all of that. Cause it was in Japan, like that was doing the rounds in, in the like underground hip hop scene or whatever. Yeah. Well, when, so, so check it out. When we released day and night, we didn't, I don't, I don't think we were released. We didn't know anything about anything, you know, <laughs> we, didn't know how to, <laughs> we didn't know who to give it to or where to take it, how to like, we had to get it mastered. We had to find a dude to master it and all this shit. You know, Ron was good about finding all of those details. And um, and then somebody, like, we just had the record, right? And then I, I don't remember where it was, but somehow Jazzy Sport bought, like, I don't remember, like 200 or something. They ordered 200 of it. And we were like, who the fuck wants wow. 200 of this record in Japan? We didn't know it was Jazzy Sport at the time. Right. And then we, we did some research, found out it was Jazzy Sport. Ross G already was familiar with the company, Jazzy Sport. But I don't think I was so familiar with it. I'm just trying to see if I can find out what that company was called. Um, P-Vine. Oh, P-Vine. Yeah, yeah. I know P-Vine. Yeah, 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 yeah. I remember them. Wait, I, I did one joint on that record. That's right. I think. That, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's, that's how I found out about you. You're also credited for the mixing on that on that cd oh really okay yeah it says mixed by black monk so these these beats that are on the night and day um the day night record were those early yeah those were like those were like those beats we were do fucking around with at ron's house you know like um the stuff that i put on day and night so okay the stuff ross g put on day and night he was those were like his best beats up until that point you know and like he had a bunch, he had a bunch of shit, but, and it was all over, like kind of dirty and all over the place. So he would, he came over to my place and I would help him kind of clean it up a little bit. But then when we put the day and night record out, we went to this dude named Mario and he really cleaned up the record. He's a, he's Ron's friend. Uh, <laughs> there's a bunch of funny stories about that guy, but <laughs> um, he- Wait, no Mario C. Mario C. Yeah, he. Oh, Mario really, C. Okay. Wow, wow. Okay. You yeah. know, but the guy yeah, he, he did a, the, the, the guy who did Beastie, Beastie Boys. Boys. Beastie Boys records. I believe. I believe so. You should. You would have to ask Ron to verify that. So were these were these parts? Did G track everything out? Like the kick, snare, bass, melody. Like it was. It was out the seat. It was this one sequence, right? I don't think G had eight outs on his MPC, so we're gonna only do stereo on that on his stuff. So I think later I tried to track his shit out. Like when we did um, Overcast EP. Okay. So check it out. Let me, let me go back. Day and night, day and night comes out. Jazzy Sports gets 200 copies. And um, uh, we figure out like, yo, Jazzy, you know, we, they, we have to get these records to them, right? So what we decide to do is I have a girlfriend who lives in Japan. So I visit her and she helps me navigate a distribution deal with jazzy sport so wow. when i fly to japan that year we had already we had already pressed up Raj G's overcast remember overcast oh, of course there's a beat called sketchbook on there no yeah mm -hmm. yeah 
Of course. Yeah. I, 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 someone jacked my record, man. I don't have the record anymore. Oh, I, I'll hold one for you. I think I got a couple. Ron might have some too. But anyway, I took that record with me to Japan, and that's the record I established a distribution deal with, with uh, Jazzy Sport. But yo, when I go to Jazzy Sport in Japan, they had a picture of Coleman on the wall. Wait, wow. Uh, back, back then, <laughs> when, yeah, I was like, what the fuck? And that's how I knew I was in the right place, you know? Right. Those dudes were hella cool. It was super fucking dope. Oh, it, it was, was a picture of Coleman, like, in the shop. Like, it was a picture of Coleman DJing, but on the wall in the shop. Wow. You know? Wow. I was like, these dudes are fans of my friends. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Him and B started going to Japan, what was like early 2000s. So that would make sense. Yeah. 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 I couldn't believe it. it was kind of it was surreal to me you know to for see sure that. yeah yeah, yeah. But, and, and behind this whole thing is man dude i still have the entire uh email correspondence between me and ross g when i was in japan that when i was selling the record it's <laughs> unreal because <laughs> he's so green you know like he knows a lot but he doesn't know so much and he's like well ask him this and try to see if for that you know and all this is it's fantastic man <laughs> so he's like my guy my hip hop guide in a place he's never been. Right. You know what I mean? And I'm in Japan trying to navigate this world of hip hop, this new world, you know, <laughs> of That's amazing. But yeah, um, the songs I put on day and night, I, those were just joints we, that I just, they were, I thought were my best joints, you know, I think I always ask Ross G what, what I should do. Mm -hmm. They're like, what, what, what I should put on there. And I would just listen to him. You know? Yeah. on my 10 inch um he asked me and i thought it was a joke at first like he was clowning me you know you know some people clown like that you know I, not that g would do that but i thought he was joking he's like no i'm dead serious i was like well then you pick him and so i just gave him a bunch of shit but because you were talking about mastering i have to bring this up because when we were working on my 10 inch i had no i i had no idea that ron wasn't going to master this shit like whatever we were doing at this moment was it that was there. Yeah, he was gonna put that out. He's like, yeah, I just like the raw sound, you know. Yeah, but I didn't know. I, I was like, okay, this sounds good now, but wait till it gets mastered. And then when I got the record, I was like, wait, what? What the fuck happened? <laughs> like, it's the same as what we did. You know that wasn't gonna be mastered? No, he does mastering, but he doesn't do like a like a traditional mix, like a traditional mix for the record. He masters it, but there's okay. So there's two kind of mastering. You master after the mix down and then you master before you press. So we master before we press. That's just so that the levels are right going straight to the vinyl. But that's not what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. you know? 
you're talking about like a, a more mixed, thorough mix mix down and master and then you send to press right right right, right yeah i wanted right. to ask you about that because okay so i didn't even know that there's but was that the case with like all the the tens on the series yeah well yeah um so like, they're basically just whatever somebody sent would just get sent to press ross g's records were dirty so something happened. Right. Some someone had to tame that wild ass beast. You know what I'm saying? I was gonna you can't say. put it on the put it on a record like that because the record was skip, you know. Exactly. So at first I was doing all of that pre-mastering, you know. And then later, so I did all the pre-masters for um, I think Can Kick, uh, Tarak, uh, your record, Kutma, Warm Like the Sunshine, my <laughs> stuff, and rock and all our Ross G stuff, but Take did his own. Remember, Take did her. Take did yeah, two the, records with the us. Am, the ambient one, yeah, that one's dope. Yeah, the, right. Or no, Take did one record with us, but he, ma- I think he mastered that. Of course, you know, Take is Take is Take. You know? But he also did uh, Take did the twelve inch with G, uh, the cover by Dim Light with the Ross G remix on Puba. The was that Puba? Oh yeah, the, it was a chipboard cover. Yeah, yes, that's right, the chipboard. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that was yeah. later. Yeah, that was much later. Man, I love that to rock. Uh, the ten inch. That's my favorite one. Oh, you the, may not the, know this, but you know Tarak was living at me at the living living at me living with <laughs> me at the time. Oh, really? Tarak was yeah. Tarak was living in my apartment. You don't remember that? I don't, you don't remember I, that. Wait, was he living living? I, Dude was living in my apart in my apartment. Yeah, but he was never there at any of the sessions. No, 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 no. It was it was a it was a brief stint. I, it may not okay. have been when. Okay, so okay, so this is when Tarak was with me right before I went to Japan. Tarak was living with me okay. because I, I I kicked him out because he used to always leave the door open and leave the house. And we had like thousands of dollars worth of equipment. Like right, right there, like right yeah, at the door. Right yeah. there. And we yeah. lived across the street from Pasadena City College. We lived across the street from a college. So people will always be walking through. Always. And there's a gas station right there. That's the not the spot. It's like Damn. a busy area. Like the Rose Parade happens on that street. You know, it, it's popping over there. But Tarak would leave. And I would come back home and the door would just be like open, you know, like, <laughs> like, dude, I can't take this anymore. So I had I, Tarak moved into Eni's place. You know, Eni, Eni Archibong, Eni Archibong. This dude is making watches for Hermes now. He wow. lived, he lived. Yeah, dude made a watch for Hermes recently. Like, Crazy. Ross G was like, man, you heard about what Eni's doing? Anyway, uh, he used to make beats. And so Tarak moved in with him after he left my place. But when Tarak was at my place, that's when the uh, crass we did crack nuts. Oh yeah, of course. And, uh, with blue, with blue, and I would help Tarak with some of his production, like not like building, but like 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 uh, mixing, you know, like would would those, would would those be tracked out, or would that be one sequence also? Uh, Tarak tracked his stuff out. He had an MP. Me and Tarak had the same MP. He had a two thousand. So he could use mine or he use his, but his was kind of funny. It was very particular the way his was set up and I couldn't, anyway, he, we used his for, for his stuff to rock. And he's, he's playing a lot of that's live bass, right? Or is that no, the, he's the little live, live finger bass? He's playing it with his fingers. Okay. Okay. But see, to rock, I used to tell to rock, you should learn how to play bass because you have a natural yep. feel for bass. You know, his bass lines were always like ridiculous. Yeah, his bass lines. Right? Yeah. 
But the thing is, is uh, he would make them backwards. So if you listen to some of his tracks, he has the click track on the track and he's doing that like on, on the record, like the click, he brings the click track. Back. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I have, yeah, I have, a... you don't do that. You know, no. that's like, that's like behind the behind base. That's like inside baseball. You don't do that, <laughs> but he did it just so he will let you know that he's trying his beat is on beat as you listen to it, but it's off on mm, the right. click. Right. You right. know, it's like weird. And I don't know. Dilla used to do that. You know, I don't know how they, I mean, I do know how you do that, but, but Tarak would have Dilla drums, dude. And he'd be like, you want these drums? And I'm like, and there's like hundreds of drums that Dilla gave him and he's giving them to me. But check this out. They were all thin. So this was like the education now. Right. So like Tarak's living with me. So he's, he, fucking used to watch Dilla make sh- shit and, and right, he right. knows G, you know? So, like, Tarak was, was I'd be like, man, all these drums are hella thin. I can't make any beats out of these. Are you sure these are Dilla's drums? <laughs> you know? He'd be like, oh, you gotta run them through an amp. I'm like, uh, what are you talking about? Get a turntable amp and run them through a turntable amp. So I go buy a turntable amp and I run the drums through the turntable amp and then resample them back into the MPC. Dude, ridiculous You're talking about yeah i mean yeah. I, had to, I was like oh my god you know <laughs> you talking wow about, like tips yeah tricks tips and tricks yeah that was one so he told me dilla used to run the drums he would sample them in mp run them through a turntable amp you know those turntable amps the little red ones by yep. rolls yeah run it through that and then back into the mpc or or run into an eq eq it right, and back right. into the mp and then sample it and then they would just be like, because yeah. the MPC, when you sample from records, it's thin. So it's like, how do I get it sound like something? I was going to say, I mean, you you worked as an engineer as well. So you also get that. I think, you know, like uh, that was the other thing about a lot of Dilla's work was he had an incredible ear for for how his stuff should be mixed. Like, like a lot of the engineers that work with him always say, like the stuff that he gave them often, there was there was not like there was really any work to do. You might have to just, you know, do a few things here and there, but like he was quite competent as an engineer. It was more than competent as an engineer in terms of, so even a story like that to me makes sense because to me, that sounds like something that an engineer would understand that you take a source sound, but then it's whatever chain you put that source sounds through that gets the sound to be like that. It's not starting with that sound, but you start with a source sound that you know has the potential to become something else through right, whatever right. chain you put it in yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so to, to rock uh to rock was he he was great man he was great He's just a great person great great personality cool to be around very encouraging were you was the a and r for the the puba stuff was that both you and g or was that mainly g that's all g hands down yeah all g I was sort of the uh, technician. Ron was sort of business wing, and Rashi was sort of the, yeah, the talent no. wing. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. that makes sense. I mean, it's super interesting to hear you talk about the kind of engineering side of those early beat things because I think you know, it's just so much of the stuff from that era, like two thousand and five till about like oh eight oh nine. There's just so much that's like super raw, like in so so many ways um so it's kind of interesting to hear how you were trying to like you say like tame the beasts that that those things were um well this is all new to me 
you know, like this dirty stuff was new right. to me. I'm like a smooth guy, you know, but these guys were, were liked it raw from the cassette, dirty. I went to school. I learned how to mix. You know, I learned how to right. clean shit up. So that's right. kind of the place I was in. It's kind of the thing where, you know, when you study, when you when you start doing something on your own, you feel like you you have more freedom with that thing before you learn how to do it traditionally. Right. You know, so like I felt like I was good on the piano before I actually learned how to play the piano. Now I feel handcuffed by the piano, you right. know, because now I have to stay within these rules. Mm. So like, but then, then there's another space beyond that where you get, you, you then get to your, to, to your own voice a- after that. So with them, like for me, it was like, I knew, I knew the dirty, I knew how to respect and appreciate the dirty, but I was in an area where I just needed things to be clean for my own production. For sure. But then I grew later to like, like appreciate what it is that they, that what they were asking for, you know, yeah, yeah, Rashi, yeah. Ku- Rashi and Kuma specifically, you know, because I, their stuff was the most, the most uh, unruly. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, how, like, what was that process like of like trying to, apply well, a degree of 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 engineering to something that is so raw well yeah i'm sorry is- i apologize <laughs> you sure you should dude i mean <laughs> <laughs> i'm just joking man it's all it's all good it's all love man <laughs> but uh kumo man oh my god dude Whew. we went over and over and over that record did we not yeah, no, I was kind of being like I, the couple of times your face, because I remember once and this really <laughs> no, there's like all this noise and all this glistening bullshit. And there's a little there's a little click. And I go, hey, guys, is it like a little click at two minutes, 13 seconds? And like you and you and G just look at each other like, what the fuck is this idiot talking about? Like The whole thing a is a, the whole thing is a click in a fucking, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? Like, what are you talking it. about? <laughs> Yeah, no, it was like you. Ha- I had to really express a lot of patience with Kuma's record. Yeah. She wasn't as bad as Kuma. Kuma's very meticulous, you know. It has to be perfect, you know. But uh, while being totally it, unperfect, <laughs> yeah, while being imperfect. But like yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. I don't know when it when it's imperfect. He does, you know. So whatever I do, he has to approve. Uh, the same with G. But like uh, going back. I only had what I had, you know, it's not like I had a whole lot of money. So I only had the gear that I had collected up until that point, you know? Um, but I was trying to cut, had a rack, you know, a compressor, uh, I had a preamp, I had an effects module. Um, we weren't doing any kind of MIDI shit. So like, it was just all like, uh, just raw shit, you know, running in, trying to run it, hitting, hitting the uh the tubes and trying to get a sound that for me that's what i was trying to do so tarot brought this big ass board over that i had and it just sounded uh console it was a it was like a yamaha 16 channel console and so i had that and then eric coleman gave me a sony it was like a 12 channel console old school console so it had this very particular sound kind of warm sound to it and it had these really nice EQs on it, like the the um, the stacked EQs, where the mid section, the sweepable mids and the sweepable, right, uh, right. they had like they had like high end, high mid, mid, 
high, you know, low, low mid, mids. low, you know yeah. what I mean? All yeah. that. And it had sweep the sweeps in there. So man, I was just having fun with that board. And I would run uh stuff through that board, the other board, and and the uh the whatever uh that um that tube compressor I had. Okay. And so that's all that's those all those that. all those Puba records were done with that setup. Just like that. Just like that. Wow. Yeah. I was just trying to get uh, squeeze the most out of what I had, you know, oh. even though it wasn't like totally professional. Yeah, yeah. It was professional gear, but it wasn't, you know, like it wasn't a studio. It wasn't like a, right, right, know, right. Like a recording studio. It was a continuation of the bedroom philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. It Word. was uh, amplified bedroom. <laughs> yeah. 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 Dope, that board Coleman gave me was, whew, was dope. I still yeah. have it. It's in the garage. I've used it for his thing. That thing we just did recently. I pulled ah. it out of the garage, mixed that on, on that board. So are you still making beats? I know, I know you're doing other things right now, but like, what's up with that? When, when, uh, no, I'm not making beats, but, uh, it's still inside. Of it's course. still inside of me. Of when, course. Um, we, when we got the lockdown, we went through that lockdown. I bought a, I bought a 404 for Ross G. Nice, nice. Ross G told me when Ross G bought his first 404, <laughs> like way back then, he's like, man, you should get a 404. I was like, nah, man, fuck that, man. I'm going to just stick with this NPC, you know. I, I, this is my thing. I like this. Mm -hmm. He's like, but I was trying to get other sounds. I was trying to get, we were trying to fuck our shit up, you know. How can we fuck up our beats more, you know. And I, I thought I can achieve it by sending the beats out to outboard modules. But he thought, nah, I'm going to get another beat machine. So he's like, you should get one. I like it. I'm like, nah, fuck that. And then DBS, you got one. And then, then the thing caught on and I made a bunch of beats on that 404. King Brit was like kind of giving me a run through on how I should approach it. So that's how I got my first head wrapped around. Like I got my head wrapped around how to do beats on this thing. It's King Brit. Yeah. And then, uh, so he, he did the soul Lynchfield on the, uh, on the 404, yeah, right? I love yeah. That shit. yeah. Me too. Yeah, I love that shit. But, um, yeah, anyway, I've already given that 404 away to my homie, man. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I'm not into it anymore, man. Like, I made a bunch of beats and I was like, all right, that was cool. And then Take was like, yo, we should release these. <laughs> and then we started talking about it. And I told him, I was like, you know what? I don't want to do it. No? I got, I'm doing, yeah, I'm doing, I have, I got so much going on with the, with film production. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm pretty well satisfied doing that, you know. <laughs>